This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. Every so often on this show, we need to do some catch-up. We have so much material that we try and go through and bring to you that uh, we can't get to all of it. And today is a day where we need to just basically go back and see what we've amassed and talk about it. We may have some other voices on the show, and then again, we may not. Actually, I know we will have at least one new voice. We we're pleased to note that America's foremost political comedian, Will Durst, will be joining this show on a regular basis. We expect to bring you a minute or so of his comedy uh, commentary uh, every time we go on the air, and that'll start on today's show. Let us commence as we like to do with On This Date in History, which in today's case is September 13th. On September 13th, 1759, during the French and Indian War, British forces won supremacy in Canada by scaling the heights above Quebec and defeating a French army on the Plains of Abraham. And you know, at some future point, we're going to have to bring fellow public affairs host France Cassing herself, a French-Canadian, on the show to talk a little bit about that. Because I'm pretty sure the French-Canadians are still a bit miffed about this day in history in 1759. On this date in 1814, during the War of 1812, when we mixed it up with the British-Canadians, the British fleet bombarded Fort McHenry in Baltimore, inspiring witness Francis Scott Key to write the Star-Spangled Banner. Which, as we all know, when it was then added to a, an old German drinking tune, became the U.S. National Anthem. And we cannot say for certain on this program whether ours is the worst national anthem, but one thing's for sure, it's not a good piece of music. And on September 13, 1847, in the last battle of the Mexican-American War, United States forces stormed the ancient Chapultepec Fortress at the edge of Mexico City and eliminated the last significant Mexican resistance. If, as a tourist, you visit Chapultepec Park in Mexico City, you will notice there's a gigantic monument to the child heroes. Apparently, a group of military cadets were manning the fort and were cut down by our illustrious invaders. And no, the Mexicans have very definitely uh, not forgotten this indignity, uh, although it's not even taught in American schools. And I'm sorry to report in going from bad to worse in U.S. military history, on September 13, 1862, in events leading up to the major American Civil War battle at Antietam, Union soldiers resting in a meadow found a copy of Confederate General Robert E. Lee's battle plan. Due to some combination of timidity, stupidity, or plain incompetence, Union General George McClellan failed to exploit this stupendous intelligence coup. So reluctant to engage in battle was General McClellan that uh, evidently President Lincoln at some point later asked him if he could borrow the Union Army if, since McClellan didn't appear to be using it. And on some happier notes in history, and in this date in 1959, the Soviet Union launched Lunik 2, which became the first man-made object to land on the moon. And finally, on September 13th in 1965, in the midst of rock and roll's musical ascendancy, Louis Armstrong struck a blow for American jazz and won a Grammy for Best Male Vocalist for his rendition of Hello, Dolly. 
Hello, darling, this is Louis, darling, it's so nice to have you back where you belong. This will give us a chance to uh, plug one of our favorite interviews ever conducted on this program, that with the illustrious Carol Channing, who played the lead in Hello, Dolly! for many years on Broadway. We would very much recommend that you go to our website, radioparallax.com, and pull that one out of the archives. We had a lot of fun with Carol Channing. Our old favorite songs from way back when. So take a wrap, our quote of the day comes from Alexander Pope, who once said, A man should never be ashamed to own that he has been in the wrong, which is but saying, in other words, that he is wiser today than he was yesterday. Our quote of the day comes from the immortal Oscar Wilde, who once said, Man is least himself when he talks in his own person. Give him a mask, and he will tell you the truth. Our joke of the day is as follows. Sam Cohn was talking to a friend, bemoaning the fact that he couldn't join the Gross Point Tennis Club. I don't understand it, he said. I told them my name, and I wanted to join the club. Sammy, his friend said, the club's restricted. They won't let Jews in. But Sammy's determined. He learned about boats. He trained himself to eat corned beef on Wonder Bread. Then he appeared at the club in a three-piece suit with a Wall Street Journal under his arm. The official says, may I help you, sir? Yes, Sam replied. I'm here to inquire about membership. Your name, asked the man, Winthrop Van Horten. And where do you live? Connecticut, of course. What's your income, sir? My wealth is something I never discuss with strangers, but I don't mind telling you that I do own a few skyscrapers in Manhattan. Very good, sir. Just one more question before I can sign you up. What is your religious affiliation? Sam looks the man in the eye and says, I'm a goy. And for those who didn't get it, <laughs> the term goy is the Yiddish word for Gentile. We would like to again thank Phil Proctor and his Planet Proctor website for that joke. We have numerous statistics to go over later in the program as regarding some poll data from Iraq, but we have, uh, let's, let's instead maybe do some miscellaneous information bits for today's program. Starting with, according to the Washington Post, consumers file more complaints about cell phones than any other industry. That's according to the Council of Better Business Bureaus. The biggest gripe of consumers? Service contracts that require customers to pay up to $250 to switch to another carrier. All right, in a surprising datum, according to the Associated Press, the most polluted air in America can be found in Arvin, California, down near Bakersfield. Smog from both Los Angeles and San Francisco apparently gets trapped between the mountains down there. And on 100-degree summer days, according to a resident quoted named Irma Garza, you can go outside and can hardly breathe. You can't send your kids out to play. If you've ever been on Highway 99 and driven through Arvin, you know that there is no industry down there. This is smoggy air that blows in from elsewhere. Very sad. Hope something can be done about that. But I tell you, if they, if they go through with their plans to develop this great Central Valley of ours and put 15, 20 more million people in it, we're all going to be breathing Arvin's air. Final datum, according to the Associated Press, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan have created a shortage of bullets, which is affecting police departments across the country. They're having to cut back on live fire training. U.S. soldiers are now firing one billion bullets per year. 
We're going to talk a bit about bullets and other military hardware in, a second, in our second segment today, particularly as to regards the cost of the military-industrial complex and what's going on currently in Iraq. We cannot recommend highly enough that you get a hold of the current edition of Rolling Stone magazine and check out the article by Matt Taibbi titled The Great Iraq Swindle. We'll be talking about that in our second segment today. Also about the fact that while all eyes in America were on General Petraeus and his testimony before Congress about how, well, we might need to withdraw a few troops from Iraq, the sixth anniversary of the September 11th attacks came and went. And, and oh yeah, the mastermind of the attack, Osama bin Laden, still at large six years later. We'd refer you to Newsweek Magazine's article, He's Still Out There, and also... The article by Tom Lasseter and Jonathan S. Landy from the McClatchy newspapers were printed in the B on September 9th. Describing bin Laden being at large, the article noted that among the factors working in his favor, according to local officials and U.S. analysts, are conservative Muslim tribes with a tradition of protecting guests and a war-torn region of grueling terrain, also seething anti-Americanism and poor intelligence gathering. At the same time, the article noted the Bush administration's campaign in Iraq has diverted troops, money, and equipment from the hunt from bin Laden since late 2001. Asked why bin Laden hadn't been caught, a, uh, a U.S. intelligence official who requested anonymity said, It's just damn difficult. He's got good security and is very mindful of his personal safety. He does have a support network. Some would note that that uh, support network appears to include the Pakistani Intelligence Service, the ISI. We like to focus in on something we talked about in this program before, the fact that um, the U.S. had bin Laden surrounded at Tora Bora and elected to not send in U.S. troops. We talked on this program with the CIA man directing the operations, Gary Bernson. We talked about his book, Jawbreaker, the attack on bin Laden and al-Qaeda, a personal account by the CIA's key field commander. We would remind our listeners that uh, we asked Mr. Bernson about how it could be that General Tommy Franks and President Bush could say, gee, we're not even sure whether bin Laden was there, which got Mr. Bernson to, to bristle and reply, oh, we know he was there. We're sure that uh, Mr. Bernson is correct in that assessment. And it's curious that Newsweek reported last week that U.S. troops came within a mile of a cave where Osama bin Laden was hiding in late 2004. The magazine reported that Sheikh Saeed, a senior Egyptian al-Qaeda operative who was later captured, said the Americans had been so close that al-Qaeda guards in the hideout were about to carry out a plan to martyr bin Laden and then kill themselves. But then the U.S. patrol moved in a different direction and al-Qaeda concluded that the Americans had strayed close to their target by sheer luck. Where did this take place? In the mountains along the Pakistan-Afghanistan border. And uh, speaking of Osama bin Laden, we would like to also refer you to Keith Olbermann's Countdown on MSNBC, where he talks about how uh, we're in quite a fix six years later. Actually, the title is Six Years Later, Where Are Those to Blame Now? In discussing Osama bin Laden... Keith Olbermann notes that his reach and recruiting are all benefiting from Bush's war in Iraq. And al-Qaeda's strength today is at a six-year high. Also, his Afghan allies, the Taliban, are resurgent, planning the death of Americans just 25 miles from Kabul. All the while, bin Laden himself operates freely, unmolested with his own media operation, 
thanks to a regional Pakistani truce endorsed by Bush in a region where Bush will not go, cannot go, even if he chooses to. It's worth taking a look at Olbermann's column. It's got a special interactive session on where are they now, uh, including Karen Hughes, who spoke at UC Davis a few years back. Uh, Karen was not fired for her uh, promoting a war in Iraq. In fact, she was promoted and stunningly promoted to the task of winning the hearts and minds of the Muslim world. We'd also highly recommend that you take a look at Mother Jones Magazine's description of, uh, of how the fine art of failure in presidential politics has been transformed in the Bush administration to where you basically fall upward. We'll talk a bit about that on next week's show. But right now, let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for staying frisky after a New England Journal of Medicine survey found that more than half of people ages 65 to 74 and a quarter of 75 to 85-year-olds still enjoy active sex lives. The report notes happily that one in four people in their 70s and 80s, in fact, reports having sex at least once a week. It was, on the other hand, a bad week last week for saying it with flowers when it was revealed that a Texas man is suing 1-800-Flowers for $1 million for revealing to his wife that he was having an affair. According to Leroy Greer, when he sent roses to his girlfriend in 2006, he specifically asked the flower delivery service to keep the transaction private. Apparently something went wrong in the communication, however, and shortly afterwards a note arrived at the couple's home thanking Greer for his business. Now Greer's wife is suing for divorce and demanding an extra $300,000 based on the evidence of her husband's adultery. Said Greer's lawyer, that thank you note's going to cost him money. And yes, it, it, it probably will. We hope this will send a lesson out there to all of, those, uh, all of those businesses that once they have your address decide that they're going to use it to try and generate more business. And finally, it was an ugly week last week for ecotourism after a boat of Japanese whale watchers spotted a majestic Baird's beaked whale breaking the surface, only to realize when they drew close that it had been harpooned by a Japanese whaling ship and was being dragged to slaughter. Said the captain of the tourist vessel, It's my job to show people whales, and it's the whaler's job to catch them. But I wonder how this can be avoided. And bonus item, we're not sure if this is good, bad, or ugly. It's probably all three. But apparently wealthy New Yorkers have started sending their dogs to swimming lessons. Yes, evidently the Dog Run Pet Spa in Manhattan. What a, what a lovely name. <laughs> the Dog Run Pet Spa. It has its own canine pool, complete with doggy steps, in which the well-heeled dogs wearing life jackets are instructed by a trained swim therapist. Now, we know what you're thinking, but according to the owner, it's all about becoming socialized. The notion that all dogs are born knowing how to swim is a myth. Now, some breeds are natural swimmers, but others feel awkward in the water and can benefit from gentle instruction. And as far as we know, they are only taught the dog paddle. Oh, 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 oh.
All right, that's the good, the bad, and the ugly. And from, I guess, maybe it's the only in Sacramento file, we're not sure, Cosmo Garvin writing in the Sacramento News and Review noted last month that Assemblyman Dave Jones, Democrat of Sacramento, is carrying legislation forward in the Assembly that will allow local governments to seize vehicles belonging to those suspected of shopping the streets for illegal drugs and prostitutes. Now, normally we like Dave Jones. He's been on this program, but this strikes us as a bit... The problem, said Dave Jones in a statement, is drive-through delinquency, wherein individuals cruise into poor neighborhoods, commit lewd and dangerous acts, and drive back out. Well, personally, we thought that was kind of the definition of a bad neighborhood. But uh, noted Cosmo Garvin, the city of Sacramento had such an ordinance on the books for years, and in the year 2000, it even nabbed the mayor, now ex-mayor of Folsom, out in North Sacramento, trying to solicit an undercover cop with cash and cocaine. Said Cosmo, the mayor never saw that pickup again. And yes, some civil libertarians have argued it's not fair for the government to seize your property before you're convicted of a crime. And in fact, the California Supreme Court last month ruled that cities couldn't enforce such ordinances because they trumped state law, thus forcing Sacramento and other towns to stop seizing cars for the time being. So we're not sure where uh, the AB 1724 stands, but uh, we agree with the News and Review that even if it doesn't become law, you might want to keep those lewd and dangerous acts in your own neighborhood. All right, as mentioned at the top of the, of the hour here, we are now, I think, officially the, the local purveyor in the greater Davis-Sacramento area of the, uh, the commentaries of America's foremost political comic, Will Durst. Thanks, Doug. Now, I always thought the president was just keeping Alberto Gonzalez around because of his name. I mean, think of it. Both Attorney General and Alberto Gonzalez begin with AG. It's the only way you can remember who was doing the gig. It's called a mnemonic device, like how I was taught the order of the planets from the sun. My very elegant mother just served us nine pizzas. Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, Pluto. Of course, Pluto got downgraded this year, so now I guess it's my very elegant mother just served us nachos. I mean, that's how bad a President George Bush has been. On his watch, we invaded the wrong country and lost a planet. Jimmy Carter called him the worst president ever. And by the very nature of that statement, it would have to include Jimmy Carter. Getting called the worst president ever by Jimmy Carter. That's not good. It's like having your drug intervention, hosted by Lindsay Lohan and Robert Downey Jr.'s driving the van. Whitney Houston slumped over registration. Bobby Brown pawing through her purse. For the Doug Everett Show, I'm Will Durst. All right, we expect to talk to Will every week like that, and uh, we're very much looking forward to that. He is America's foremost political comic. Now let's, uh, let's close this segment uh, by referring to Allison App Roberts' uh, little piece in the Sacramento Bee this weekend about such things as acrostics and other mnemonic devices that allow you to remember things. That is an acrostic, apparently, that uh, Will just used for the solar system. Now, personally, I think you should just visualize the solar system in your mind. I, I never used that uh, that mnemonic device because I, you know, can visualize the different planets. 
But I guess if you can't visualize it, it is a useful tool. Uh, I do think of in medical school learning <laughs> the mnemonic device. Susie lowers Tommy's pants, then they copulate happily, which, of course, translates into the eight carpal bones, the scaphoid, lunate, triquentrum, pisiform, trapezium, trapezoid, capitate, hamate. But I must say, I do find some of these to be of extremely dubious value. For example, the supposed components of the rainbow, Richard of York gave battle in vain. That is a really crappy way to remember red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. How about Roy G. Biv? That's how I learned it back in school. That makes more sense. Also, the Great Lakes. Can't you just in your mind visualize Lake Superior, then Lake Michigan, then Lake Huron, then Lake Erie, then Lake Ontario? Well, if you're the product of an American education in geography, no, you probably can't. So I guess then you can, in desperation, resort to the acronym for the Great Lakes, HOMES, Huron, Ontario, Michigan, Erie, and Superior, which, if you can't visualize them, at least still gives you their names. Now, personally, if I was trying to remember the, uh, you know, which suits and bridge, uh, you know, trump the others or highest to lowest, I just would remember that it is, you know, spades, hearts, diamonds, clubs. But if you can't, I guess you can use the acrostic, Sally has dirty children. Now, one I did like, if you're trying to remember the names of Snow White's seven dwarfs, it's two Ds, two Ss, and three emotions. Yeah, Doc and Dopey, Sneezy and Sleepy, and Bashful, Happy, and Grumpy. That's not likely to come up unless you go on Jeopardy, but, uh, you know, <laughs> it's useful. And I got to tell you, I just don't think that these ten valuable amino acids have long preserved life in man is really going to help you remember threonine, tryptophan, valine, arginine, histidine, lysine, phenylalanine, leucine, isoleucine, and methionine. But then again, there's a lot of knowledge out there. Whatever, whatever can help you, you know, uh, <laughs> the way that you can remember. In this case, it's described as a partial homonym of the terms for stalactites and stalagmites. And I want to thank my third grade teacher for giving me this one, which was, when the mites come up, the tights come down. We, uh, we would like to note uh, the contribution of Robin Fox, who brings you, along with Bill Wagman on Alternate Weeks, the Saturday morning folk show here on KDVS, the way to remember Henry VIII's six wives, or at least what happened to them, which was divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, lived. Anyway, interesting article in the B by Allison App Roberts. It's time to take a break. Uh, you're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll be back after a few messages.